can happen in just one year. If I was to ask you, what do you remember about 2003? I wonder what you would say. Well, last weekend, the Sunday Times published their quiz of 2003. And in this quiz, we were reminded of various events which took place last year. Let me give you some of the highlights. 2003 was, of course, the year when Saddam Hussein was captured in Iraq. 2003 was also the year when Arnold Schwarzenegger, the bodybuilder and movie star, became governor of California. 2003 was the year when Britain got zero at the Eurovision Song Contest. (laughs) Had to put it in. And finally, 2003 was the year when David Blaine managed to live in a box with only water for 44 days. The profound and the bizarre. And God willing, 2004, is going to be the same in many respects. It will no doubt be a year full of events that will demand our time, our resources, and our attention. For example, who knows what David Blaine will do in 2004? And God willing, in The Economist, The World 2004, we are given an insight into what we can expect to encounter this year. Here's just a few of them. 2004 is the year when the Olympic Games will return to where they began in Athens. And apparently, of the 4 billion TV sets in the world, 3.7 billion will be tuned into the Olympic Games this year. 2004 will also be the year when 10 mostly ex-communist countries will join the European Union. And 2004 is a big year for voters. Countries that account for nearly half the world's population will hold nationwide elections this year, including, among others, America, India and Russia. Daniel Franklin, the editor of The World 2004, concludes, One thing's for sure about 2004. It will not be dull. And we'll have our own ambitions and goals for this year. You might have an ambition to get further ahead in your career, Maybe your goal this year is to get fitter, to go to the gym at least once a week, to make use of that membership. Or maybe your goal for this year is even to learn to cook, which has been my ambition in life for the past five years. It's never quite happened yet. And no doubt we will experience times of encouragement and also times of discouragement in 2004. There will be times when things seem to be going so well. And there will be other times when there are real challenges to face. So the question I want to think about as we start 2004, with all that can happen in one year, is how will you and I keep focused? How will you keep focused as a Christian in 2004? 2,000 years ago, around AD 60, a letter was written to a young church in a place called Colossae, a city in Asia Minor, which gives us the answer to this question. The person who wrote the letter was the Apostle Paul. 
And Paul's purpose in this letter, which he wrote while he was in prison, is to stress the uniqueness and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Paul reminds us that the way we keep focused as Christians is by recognising who we are serving. We are serving a magnificent Christ. Robert Murray McShane wrote the same thing in one of his letters. He wrote, If we are to know the blessing of God in our lives and ministries, we must live in daily contemplation of the greatness and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is Paul's advice for the church in Colossae, and also for us here in Edinburgh. We are to look at Jesus Christ. So let's read Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 to 20. And you'll find it on page number 1182 of the Pew Bibles. Page number 1182. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15 to 20. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. He that is Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The passage we have just read, according to linguistic scholars, is almost certainly an early Christian hymn. And in this hymn, which has become part of Holy Scripture through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul shows us how we can keep focused as a Christian in 2004. He reminds us that we serve a magnificent Christ. And he does this by relating Christ in turn to three magnitudes. Firstly, Paul relates Christ to God. Paul describes Christ in relation to God in two phrases. In verse 15, he writes, He is the image of the invisible God. And in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Firstly, Christ is the image of the invisible God. To help us to understand what the word image means here, biblical scholars have reminded us what used to happen in the ancient Near East. When rulers left their country for any reason, maybe they went away to war or they went on a trade mission, they would have an effigy made of themselves. And that effigy would be put in the central shrine of the nation, perhaps in the great temple. 
And the effigy was more than just like a photograph. Rather, it was put there to express their presence. Although the ruler was absent, they were still present, in a sense, in their image. And this background has huge relevance for what Paul is saying here. God is invisible because God is a transcendent being. Therefore, God is not caught in space and time. But he has given us an image in the person of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, the invisible has become visible. The New Bible Dictionary tells us that the word image in the New Testament describes not merely a reflection or likeness to God, rather it indicates a sharing in the divine life. So in other words, in Jesus, we not only meet God, we not only see God, but in Jesus, we meet God. And therefore, in the second phrase, we read that Christ is the complete expression of God. We read in verse 19 that God finds pleasure in having his fullness, his deity, packed into Jesus Christ. Jesus is God in the fullest possible sense. And that is why Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. Last month we finished a 10 week course called Christianity Explored here at Charlotte Chapel. And it's a course developed by Rico Tice from All Souls Church in London. And the course is based around Mark's Gospel. And it's designed primarily for people exploring what it means to be a Christian. And so people in this church brought to the course their neighbours, friends, and people they met through work. And we had a brilliant time over the ten weeks. And we even got fed, which made it even better. And one of the things we tried to get across as we went through the course is that it just doesn't make any sense at all to say that Jesus was only a great moral teacher. Why? Because in Jesus, we meet someone who claims to me, who claims to be, and is declared to be, God in person. C.S. Lewis, who is a brilliant thinker and professor of English literature at both Oxford and Cambridge universities, made this point very well. He said, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said, wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. But don't let us come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left it open to us. He didn't intend to. And at the end of last year, that is what people on the Christianity Explored course did. They investigated for themselves who Jesus Christ is. And some became Christians. They recognised that in Jesus we meet God. And they declared that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is the earliest confession of what it is to be a Christian. Paul summarised it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it is a choice that each one of us must make. Will you worship Jesus as Lord? And it's the most important choice you could make in 2004. So that is the first dimension, Christ and God. 
And the second dimension is Christ and creation. Verses 15 to 17. There are three aspects of this great reality which are featured here. Christ is the source, he is the sustainer, and he is the goal of creation. So firstly, Jesus Christ is the source of creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. We were over in Chicago a couple of years ago, and we went to the Adler Planetarium on the shore of Lake Michigan. And as soon as you enter this planetarium, you are bombarded with information about how vast the universe is. And so we stood there with the rest of the tourists, trying to look very intelligent, as we were told how vast the universe is. You see, we didn't want to give the British a bad name. But the sheer vastness of it all, the billions of galaxies and stars that make up our universe... And Paul tells us here that Jesus made it all. The visible world and also the invisible world. All things were created by him and for him. And of course John writes the same thing in his gospel when he describes Jesus as being the agent of creation in John chapter 1. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And the opening verses of Genesis tell us how this came about when God said, let us make God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the creator. We're often asked today in our pluralistic culture how Jesus relates to religious figures such as Mohammed, Buddha, and Krishna. We are asked to make room for others alongside Christ. How do we defend our claims as to the uniqueness of Jesus? Well, here's a point of distinction to go on with. Jesus made them all. He is the creator, and he stands supreme. And that's why Peter could say, there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ stands unique. So he is the source, and secondly, he is the sustainer of creation. Verse 17. In him, all things hold together. Now it follows that if all things are made out of nothing through God's word in Jesus Christ, the universe is not inherently self-sustaining. It's what we call a contingent universe. Read about this in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So what does this mean for us as we start 2004? What it means is that we are utterly dependent on God. Every beat of our pulse is a gift of God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought that your greatest challenge in 2004 may actually be your greatest blessing? Why? Because it reminds us that we are totally dependent on God, the one who sustains the universe. 
And because we are totally dependent on God, that is why prayer is so vital in the life of a Christian and in a church. You see, you see this in the life of someone like Hudson Taylor, who was used by God in a powerful way as a missionary in China. Hudson Taylor knew that prayer was vital because he also knew that he was totally dependent on God. And this is what Hudson's son, Howard Taylor, said of his father. For 40 years, the sun never rose on China that God didn't find him on his knees. And that is where our confidence lies in 2004. We trust in God who says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So all things depend on Christ. And thirdly, they are all for Christ. Christ is the goal of creation. Verses 15 and 16. He is the firstborn over all creation. Now this phrase has been misunderstood by a lot of people, not least by the Jehovah's Witnesses, who claim that Christ is first among the created beings. But of course, by looking at the Bible and the, and the context of what, where the scripture stands, it is very clear that Jesus did not have a beginning of existence. So what is Paul saying here? The word firstborn refers not to time, but to status. It is a word from Jewish family law. The firstborn son in any family held the place of highest privilege and responsibility. The firstborn son was always the heir to the family fortune. Therefore, Paul is simply saying here that as the firstborn over all creation, Christ is the Father's heir. All things were created by him and for him. He is the reason why all things exist. And that is why without Christ in our lives, nothing ultimately makes any sense. There is lack of purpose and direction. As Augustine of Hippo wrote at the start of the famous confessions, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. So he is the source, he is the sustainer, and he is the goal of creation. And that leads us to the final dimension, which in many senses is the greatest of all, Christ and humanity. Verses 18 to 20. Christ is the saviour of the world. And verse 18 we read, he is the head of the body, the church. Paul is writing here of Christ's union with his people. And implicit with this is the incarnation. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in a manger in Bethlehem, Christ becomes one with us in space and time. And he comes to us because we have a desperate need. If you look at verse 21, read that we were alienated from God. We rebel against God and become his enemies. And that is what Jesus comes from the heart of God to deal with. In verse 20, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The sin was ours, but the death, which is the penalty for sin, was his. Think what that involved. The divine one, the all-creating one, becomes the human one, becomes the crucified one. And that is the reality of God's love. Isaac Watts was reflecting on the depth of God's love when he wrote his great hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross, 
on which the Prince of Glory died. My richest gain I count but loss, and pour contempt on all my pride. And that is the wonder of the atonement. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But it doesn't end there. In verse 18 we read, He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead. And the resurrection proclaims the victory over evil that was won at the cross. And that is why Christians in the first century refused to worship the Roman Emperor as Lord. Even if it meant death. They knew what had happened. And many had seen it for themselves. Jesus was alive. And therefore he alone is to be worshipped as Lord. And that takes us to a statement in verse 18 that has huge significance for every Christian. And it's the key statement of this hymn. And it directs us on how we can respond as a Christian to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And in particular, it goes to the heart of our motivation for evangelism. If you look at verse 18, we read, So that in everything he might have the supremacy. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Let's think about what that means for us in 2004. Charlotte Chapel has had a long history of sending missionaries to many different nations to tell people about Jesus Christ. Currently, we as a church help support 40 missionaries operating in 10 different countries of the world. I want you to think about this question. Why do we do that? And why do we run courses like Christianity Explored here in Edinburgh and put adverts in the metro inviting people to attend? Why do we have events like the vigil during the festival? And why do we have guest services here at Charlotte Chapel on Sundays throughout the year? In other words, why evangelism? Well, we'd all probably say we are obeying a commandment, the Great Commission. We are to go and make disciples of all nations. Another reason is compassion for people living without Christ. We long for people to find in Jesus what we have found, and that is new life. But Paul gives us here in verse 18 another answer, which in many ways is the highest motivation of all. It is a concern for the glory and honour of Christ, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. In recognising who we are serving, we are motivated to tell people about Jesus and what he has done. And that is God's will. God's desire is that all people everywhere should worship Jesus as Lord. And that is why evangelism, properly understood, is a form of worship. It is a way of exalting Christ, lifting his name on high. And what that means for us, for you and me, is that you cannot have a passion for God without having a passion for the lost. Robert Murray McShane put this very well. He said, there are two things in the Christian life that we can never desire with sufficient ardour. One is personal holiness of life, and the second is the honour of Christ in the salvation of souls. That is the motivation. So how do we apply this personally to our lives in 2004? Can I try and be very practical here? Next week, as you go back to work, after the Christmas break, as meet with your neighbours, ask God to put in your heart 
two or three people who you can pray for this year that they'll become Christians. Pray for them and spend time getting to know them. And there are a lot of things we can do anyway which we can invite other people to. For example, how about going out for a meal or going to Starbucks for a coffee with someone at your work who is a non-Christian? How about inviting some folks from your street to watch a sports event with you? It could also be a good excuse for watching Olympic Games. Going for a round of golf with a colleague, taking turns to babysit your children with your neighbour. There are a lot of things we can do without burning ourselves out. And when an event such as Christianity Sports starts, or there is a guest service, you can bring them to it. And it won't be awkward, it won't be contrived, it won't be forced. Why? Because a relationship has already been developed. And we do this ultimately so that in everything, Christ might have the supremacy. We are focused on who we are serving. Just over a year ago, I was at a place called Wheaton College in the United States. And at Wheaton, I met a lady called Lisa Beamer, who along with her husband Todd, an account manager with the software company Oracle, demonstrated what it meant to keep focused on who they were serving. They were a fairly ordinary couple living in Princeton, New Jersey. Lisa looked after the kids, David and Drew, and Todd had a well in his profession, gaining the respect of his colleagues. Because of his professional success, more and more of Todd's clients were multinational companies, which meant that Todd was frequently travelling long distances to meet with his clients. But then on September 11th, 2001, as Todd was travelling to California for a business meeting, Todd sacrificed his life to avert a fourth plane from crashing into the terrorist intended target in Washington, D.C. Just days after September 11th, Lisa, as Todd's wife, made her first appearance on CNN's Larry King Live. And Larry King asked Lisa if she was surprised at anything her husband did that day. Now this was her reply. Todd was a man of faith. He knew that this life was not all there is. And this life was just here to prepare him for his eternity in heaven with God and with Jesus. Todd did his best every day. He wasn't perfect and neither am I. But he did his best to ensure that he was living a life that was pleasing to God. And he acted on that all the way to the end. Todd kept focused. He knew who he was serving. He served a magnificent Christ. And that's what will keep you focused as a Christian in 2004. And that's what will keep us focused as a church in 2004. We recognize who we are serving. Jesus Christ, the one who is God, the one who is the creator, the one who is the savior. He stands unique and he stands supreme. We serve a magnificent Christ. Let's pray.